0: Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters.
1: Little Atoms actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism.
2: Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting.
1: Good evening and welcome to Little Adams with me, Becky Hogg, and my co-host Neil Denny is about to introduce this week's guest.
0: Thanks, Becky. It's great to welcome back to the show Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis is a producer, writer and director of television documentaries such as Pandora's Box, The Mayfair Set, The Century of the Self, The Power of Nightmares and The Trap. Adam's films have an instantly recognisable visual style, characterised by an extensive use of archive footage. In his filmmaking, he often focuses on the impact of different ideologies and the various manifestations of power in society. Adam's latest series, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, begins on BBC Two on the 23rd of May. It's coming Monday. Adam, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. I've just mentioned the idea that your your films look at the impact of different ideologies and the various manifestations of power... We can see that theme again in these in these three new films. They're three really distinct films, but again, there is an overlying theme across the series, so let's talk about what that is.
2: Well, I mean, the overlying... Th- I mean, you're right, they are three very different stories. I decided this time to try and make three very different films. But, yes, they address... I suppose the thing that I'm fascinated by is where has power gone in our society? There's a sense... It's not, it's not really articulated. There's a mood that somehow power has been distributed. I mean, there are some people who say this openly. The market has distributed power. Uh, other web uh, cyber utopians say the, mar- the, the web has distributed power. I, I, I mean, I, keep, I kept on hearing that over the last ten years when I was making other films, and I was always rather suspicious of it because I haven't actually seen power go away. I mean, I haven't seen power being transferred from one vested interest to another. So I was always suspicious about it. So what I started to look at was this idea, and it leads you to the thing that I think is the sort of... It's not so much an ideology, it's a sort of organising principle of our age. You know the thing where everyone says, oh, we're all connected? Or they talk about... If they're a bit posher they talk about connectivity. Or there's a global economy where we're all interconnected. And then there's the ecosystem where we're all connected. So I've decided, OK, I'm going to look at why we think we're all connected, and the three films, in different ways, try and trace back the roots of that and, as you said in the introduction, then show the consequences of that when it's played out in the real world.
0: The series is called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving and Grace and, and there's basically across the series three manifestations of the idea of the machine, I would say, which we'll, we'll perhaps get to talk about all of them over the course of the show. But let's talk first of all about there's a 60s poet called Richard Broughtigan who that title comes from. Let's talk about who he was. And- yeah,
2: Richard, well, it's a, it's a wonderful title. I mean, I just love it. Uh, I also had great fun persuading the BBC to let me use it, which I managed to. It's, it was written by Richard Broughtigan. He's most famous for writing a novel called Trout Fishing in America. Mm-hmm. He was a counterculture. I mean, he was a hippie, to be blunt. But in, in 1967, he one day he went out into San Francisco and walked through the streets distributing out this manifesto. It was written in the form of a poem and it's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I was fascinated when I found out about this because I'd always been brought up to think that hippies just like, you know, organic stuff. But actually, it's, it's a vision But also uh, it's a sort of, it's a political vision in a sense of a world of the future where systems of nature and systems of computers have somehow become intertwined together. So deers stroll past computers on cybernetic meadows. I mean it's beautiful and it's a sort of vision of this interconnected world both electronic and natural. And I thought, well, in a way, that is a manifestation of the ideology of our time. I don't think that's quite what we've got, but it it is quite resonant of the sort of cyber-utopian moods of our time and, and the way that sort of bleeds into ideas of nature. So I chose to use that title.
0: You just raised the idea of cybernetics, and I must admit, until I started, until I looked it up, I, I no, he, had no idea what it was. I just presumed it was a bit to do with computers because it had the word "cyber" in it. Yeah, but um, it, the, that idea basically runs ahead runs across all of the three films. So it's Let's a, talk about a, what it is.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. If you do go into this, if you go and look into this area, if you go into where does the ecosystem come from, if you then go and look at where do web ideas of connectivity and new kinds of democracy come from it all leads you back to cybernetics. It's a forgotten thing now, but actually it resonates very deeply in our culture because what cybernetics was was a discipline that crossed across a lot of sciences in the post-Second World War, uh, in the computer laboratories in America. And what it was was this idea. I mean, the idea of systems has been around for, you know, hundreds of years, but what cybernetics says is that computers can look at the world as the transfer of information around systems. I mean, I'm simplifying grossly. And that, really, you can look at the whole world, whether it be the structure of the cells within your body or your brain, or whether you can look at nature, or whether you want to look at human societies. They can all be perceived as systems around which information flows. Why this became powerful is because computers could analyse information and then predict how it would behave within these systems. What interested me is that it is, whilst it appears to be... What's the word? A sort of uh, a nice piece of an engineering attitude. It's got a fundamental shift in view of human beings inside it, which says... And and I do think... I mean, I don't think I'm pushing it too much to, to say that it is a shift away from the old Enlightenment idea that human beings are separate from nature, separate from the rest of the world, above the rest of the world, and to use words we're not allowed to use these days, can shape and bend the world to their will. That's the old Enlightenment idea, towards the cybernetic idea, which is we are all components in systems. So, for example, the ecosystem or the World Wide Web. The cybernetic view is that it's an interwoven network where everyone is connected at nodal points. Information flows around. It's too complex for human beings to understand. Computers can see it and analyse it and predict. But what happens is as that information flows around the system, pinging backwards and forwards between the different nodal points, the system can stabilise itself. That's the idea behind cybernetics, self-regulating systems. And you see that manifestation today in all sorts of areas. And the student movement is about to hate me, but you see it within m- modern ideas of global capitalism, that somehow the systems can stabilise themselves. And you see it within the radical idea of self-organising networks that uh, some of the political movement today have. And. What I'm saying, it's not saying it's a good or a bad thing, I'm trying to trace it back, show where it comes from and say, actually, there are political ideas in that.
1: I'd like to press you a bit more on that. I'm really interested to hear that you had been encountering these ideas of collectivity throughout your filmmaking career. I feel a little bit, having watched the first episode, like you're the best friend who suddenly... I turned up at school one day and you stole my lunch money. I think I found a lot of safe harbour in the idea of network self-organisation as an escape from some of the other sort of power structures that you've elucidated in in your previous films, particularly The Power of Nightmares. I remember uh, four or five years ago, I was working at a website that believed very much in the power of the web to promote global democracy, and a discussion on The Power of Nightmares was the longest thread on the forums that we had ever sustained. people were coming from all corners of the world to talk about it are you expecting a backlash from people who have followed your films up until this point do you you say that you're not making a judgment but having watched at least the first film in the series it feels like there is a judgment there that actually perhaps this is blinding us to the political power that that still exists and that we can't fight against when we when we believe these theories
2: i'm not attacking in any way uh, the idea is that the web can spread information. I think that's a fantastic thing, and it is brilliant. It's brilliant at organising and reorganising the world through the flow of information. That's fantastic. It can, For example, it can collect people together in squares in Egypt in a way that previously, although possibly revolutions have happened before all this, but sure. that's another question. What I find somewhat naive, or possibly even more than somewhat naive, just naive, is the idea that you find within a lot of this web utopianism that somehow... You can get a new democracy like this, because underlying that is what I think is a very, very, very limited idea of democracy, which simply says all democracy is, is us connected, millions of us connected in nodal points, communicating through feedback, cybernetic idea, mm-hmm. and out of that will come a new shared order and harmony. Well. The last time I looked, democracy was not about just lots and lots of individuals. That's a naive market idea of democracy, which I think we suffer from at the moment. Democracy is about negotiating between the powerless and the less powerful and large strong vested interests in society who often use their unequal access to power to their own advantage at the expense of the less weak, sorry, the less powerful and the more weak. And that what democracy is about is about electing people Men and women who will then stand up and represent you, the weak, and negotiate against the powerful. Now, that, as far as I know, hasn't gone away. And, in fact, actually, all evidence shows that our societies in the West are becoming more and more concentrated. Power is becoming more and more concentrated and more and more unequal. So, uh, yes, I am ch- I am challenging implicitly. I'm not, t- I'm not out to do a polemic. I'm telling you stories. Mm. And I'm telling you stories to s- which says, look, w- what you believe in this, it comes from here. And I'm then putting on the top of it my own judgment, which is I think it's naive. Uh, One of the things uh, you haven't seen the second film in the the second (laughs) in the second film. I think you might find it even more disappointing. (laughs) <laughs> in the second film, I go back to the origins of a lot of this. In, in the first film, I look at the idea of self-organising networks on the right or w- within this idea that somehow they can transform capitalism into a new kind of stability. In the second film, I look at how it has risen up on the left or the countercultural left. And I go back to the counterculture movement of the 1960s, which rejected politics mm. It it saw the student movement of the 60s fail to transform the power structure of America. It saw corruption everywhere, and it retreated, and it retreated into the communes out in the countryside where they deliberately turned to cybernetic ideas. I mean, the poet I was talking about, Richard Broutigan, was one of them. Cybernetic ideas of social organisation. So if if you lived in a commune, there were no hierarchies. There were no alliances allowed. There were no coalitions allowed. You negotiated with each other one-on-one, uh, and out of that was supposed to come a new order. Now, as I show in the film, A, that is a wonderful, glorious idea where you can somehow retreat from the ferocity of power and create this new kind of harmony. What actually happened in the communes is they practically all failed dramatically and quite horribly in many cases because what happened in those systems is that some people were more powerful than others. Sure. I mean, really... I mean, I've mean, i interviewed two, two people who appear in the film. Half of what they told me they wouldn't tell me on film... I mean, some of the things that went on in the communes were about powerful people emerging in a self-organising network. Because there were no coalitions and alliances allowed, the rest in the group were powerless to stop that. And it was quite horrific, some of it. And the really interesting thing, which I I haven't really touched on in the film, is a lot of the modern feminist movement in America came out of the failure of the communes in the early 70s because they saw what patriarchal power can do when unleashed, when there are no countervailing forces, and in some cases it involved acts which would now be considered criminal. no, I mean, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I do think that there is a naivety at the heart of a lot of the protest movement at the moment. I'm deeply sympathetic to their to their ideas, and but I think that you don't change the world unless you come to understand where power is, how to confront it, and how that needs not leadership, but it needs a sense of a guiding idea and inspiration from individuals who can inspire.
1: So, this is, this is really interesting because about 15 months ago, we had on the show uh, Stuart Brand, who is one of the key interviewees in, in the second series. He, he, in the second uh, episode, yes, he, he appears him, yes. briefly in, in, in the first. Now, he was very much a part of the counterculture then, and he was feeding off these ideas to promote that counterculture. Now, he runs a business consortium called the Global Business Network and consults to big oil and to the military. And yet, the protest movements on the other side of the security cordon, the arms demos, are still clinging on to this idea. Oh,
2: no, no, but it's even... I mean, no, you're completely right. It's, it's so fascinating, this. I mean, it really is, and I haven't had enough time in three hours to do this because brand is... Brand... He's a mild man, he's a very nice man, and he genuinely is historically important. He is one of the great promoters of this idea of self-organisation. He invented this thing called the Whole Earth Catalogue, which was the first... It was the internet before the internet, where all the information about what you could get came from the different communes, and somehow it sorted itself out. Actually, he admits that he ran it, but that's... <laughs> I mean, he's he has a sense of humour about himself. He's terribly, terribly important in this. In the early 90s, he... And people like him who've come out of the counterculture movement fuse in Silicon Valley with the extreme right, not extreme right, the libertarian right. And what they find, and this is really fascinating thing of our time, is that they're saying the same thing. The libertarian right are saying if you get rid of political hierarchies, capitalism will flourish. And especially now we can connect them with computers, that will self regulate, cybernetic, and you won't need politics any longer. Brand comes along with some other people. He's not alone. And they, and he goes, hang on, that's just what we're saying. We're hippies. We believe there shouldn't be any hierarchies and that actually everyone can work together in this nodal way and oh my God, it's capitalism, but never mind, maybe it'll be a new kind of capitalism. That's what he says, and in fact, you're quite right, they found this business called the Global Business Network, which consults for all the, what the modern protest movement would see as the demonic powerful forces. Yet, you are absolutely right, the ideas that he has promoted throughout his life and still promotes to the organisations he deals with, distributed power, nodal, cybernetic ideas, are exactly the same as today's protest movement are using to try and challenge people like that well isn't that interesting yeah absolutely
1: absolutely
0: i just want to go, go back to um, the end of the of the first film and another v- very similar irony comes out which is you know this idea that the computers did away with risk. Basically, we also a few weeks ago had John Lanchester on on the show, and we talked about you know. So we now we, we're a bit clued up on the on the financial crash, which I never was I never was before.
2: It does tend to slip away from one's
0: brain. <laughs> yeah. But um, so we talked about this idea about getting rid of risk, which leads to obviously the, you know the subprime, and basically the, you know this idea that we were going to abolish um, boom and bust, and there was this sort of utopia where everybody was going to do really well, and you know it looked like that was going to happen for a bit. Of course, the ironic thing is what happens is that there is just this new Elite, which is the you know the financial institutions, which, which are entrenched. Um, the irony there, though, is that all of these Randian heroes and masters of the universe in the financial world are basically underpinned by communist China.
2: Well, yeah. how did that come about? Well, that's the irony. At the, I mean, at the end of the film, I don't want to go into too much because I don't want to give away the whole story. But no, true. but but what's fascinating? I mean, what's fascinating about our time is this idea that comes out of this self-organization that you can get a new kind of capitalism. With the computers. Yes, you're right. They abolish risk. They also allow um, the new businesses that emerge from people like Stuart Brand's world, Amazon and all those, to respond instantaneously to your needs. And you get, then the dream was, you get a stability out of it. Then you get the attacks on September the 11th. I'm shortening very quickly. Everyone said, Do you remember the phrase? The, the world has changed. Mm. And then it didn't. I mean, it just didn't. It went back, and you got an even bigger consumer boom. The the cyber-utopian new capitalist lot said, oh, that's because the system can stabilise itself. It's cybernetics in operation. I mean, they didn't quite put it like that, but that's what they were saying. Actually, what I try and point out in the film is that it was a supreme act of political power, the very thing that was supposed to have been abolished, by the Chinese leadership on the other side of the world who said, we are never going to allow American capital to destabilise ourselves like uh, American capital, or Western capital, did in 1998 in Southeast Asia. I'm not going to tell you what they did because it would be too long-winded, but they then set out to, in a sense use their exchange rate and the cheap goods they make to manage America. It was an act of power. And this is really all I'm saying in all these films, to go back to what you were talking about, the disappointment you shared, mm-hmm. is that I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the protest movements and to challenging power in society, but you're not going to do it through self-organising networks where you all sit round and there are no leaders and there, isn't, there is no sort of guiding vision except self-organisation. It's a retreat, I think, and I think in many respects, I think it's a cowardly retreat on the part of the left from confronting the fact that power is getting more and more and more concentrated in our society, but they don't have an alternative. And they retreat, like bureaucrats, like librarians, into process, processes of organisation, without actually inspiring me with a vision of another kind of way of organising the world.
0: You're listening to Little Atoms today with me, Neil Denny, and Becky Hogg, and we're talking to filmmaker Adam Curtis. So I mentioned at the top of the show, Adam, that there's there's basically three versions of the idea of the machine across the series and the, f- the first one is that you know the computer's doing away with risk and stuff second one is nature itself um, and in the third program basically the machine is is man and you introduce this, the the story of the you know the idea behind the selfish gene and about how you know genes are basically self-replicating machines and we are just the carriers of it let's talk a little bit about the, the sort of background to where this idea comes from because there's a really really interesting characters involved in this, I particularly like, if we can, talk a little bit about George Price.
2: George Price is fascinating. I mean, to be honest, I'm a journalist, uh, and and I start making films because I find what I think is a really good story. And the story of George Price, who is one of the two men, the other is a a British scientist called Bill Hamilton, who really come up with the theory that lies behind what Richard Dawkins then later popularised in the 1970s as the selfish gene. Uh, they've been hidden behind his rhetoric, us. I mean, I don't. That's not his fault. It, it's the power of his his the way he describes it, but they are completely fascinating characters. Price, especially Price, is an American who actually comes out of the computer industry. He works uh, in the computer industry in America in the fifties, and also is one of these arch rationalists, super rationalists. Everything. I mean, he, his daughter actually described it, she didn't say it in an interview, but she described to me privately, he was a bit like a machine himself. Everything would be analysed rationally. And together, he and Hamilton proposed the solution to the great problem that evolutionary theory had always had, which is why are human... If, if, if everything is a struggle for existence between competing codes buried within us, why are some people nice to each other? It was this enormous puzzle. And they mathematically propose that actually there is a game of strategy going on there. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into a great explanation of the selfish gene theory, but they really come up with that. What's fascinating about Price is that Price, the arch-rationalist, the machine himself, faced with the fact that not only does this say this means being good is actually just a mathematical code telling you as a machine to do it, but actually being bad is also the same. In fact, everything might be just a coded instruction from a thing within you, uh, reacts in a very, very strange way. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it leads him to try and demonstrate through his own life that in his own theory is wrong and challenge it. And it leads to absolutely tragic consequences. It's a sort of... I mean, it's, it's a story that had been lurking around in my brain for a long time and I've always wanted to tell and I do it but it's also I'm trying to show in that is not just tell the story of how we come to see ourselves as a machine I think it's quite a limiting idea and what I argue in the film is that we have become attracted to it at the very time in which we've retreated from the idea of being able to change the world and make it how we want it to be We find it intractable, so we turn to this rather fatalistic idea, which is, oh, we're just code. Sorry, we're just carrier machines, as Richard Dawkins says, uh, whose job is simply to carry those codes through. Why I find Price interesting is that I think he's one of the great heroic figures of our time. He tries to fight against it, Um, but the mood's against him.
0: Now you. um well, before I start this, I'll preface, preface this by saying, you know, I personally think this third film in this series is is fantastic. I think it's one of the best things you've ever done. Thank I was virtually, virtually moved to tears by it. It's so powerful. You parallel that story of Price and, and the Selfish Gene with basically the depredations of white Europeans across the continent of Africa. Why that parallel, do you think? Why do those two well, things...
2: Can I just say I'm terribly pleased you like that film because it's the most experimental film I've yet made. Uh, I deliberately did it as an experimental film where I take two stories... I mean, it starts at one point with one of the scientists, Bill Hamilton, in a jungle in the Congo in the year 2000. I won't explain why. You'll find out if you watch the film. And then go off down the story of Hamilton and Price and the Selfish Gene and our relationship with the Congo stroke Rwanda... Over the past one hundred years, it's extremely experimental. I jump around in narratives. I think it works, uh, but it's like I've really pushed it. So I'm really, I am mm. really pleased you liked it. In answer to your question, why I've done it is because what I wanted to show was the rise of that idea of our ma- ourselves as machines. Well, we went for it because we failed to take something. All the everything we tried to do in the Congo and. Zaire, and then in Rwanda, has always led to disaster. Now, I don't just mean evil mining companies. I mean, as I show in the film, when liberals at the end of the Belgian Empire try and solve what's going to happen in Rwanda, they make it worse. And I do think it is one of the great dilemmas of our time which the liberal imagination has just not come... Way. No, it hasn't. It's come to terms with it. It's retreated, which is we are the children of the Enlightenment. We, we have these, this education. We have this power. We have this wealth. Yet somehow, whenever we try and change the world, this is the mood of our mm-hmm. time amongst liberals. It's what I call oh, dearism. It just goes wrong. And you look at it and you go, look, everyone in the Congo is fighting each other over the minerals. And, and what appeared to be good Tutsis, they're just as bad as the Hutus. And, oh, dear. That's it. And what I'm was trying to, sh- what i trying to show in that film is the story of how that happened, how we became Odeiris, at the same time as how we retreated into a machine vision of ourselves and put the two together, and at the same time, hopefully, I mean, you can't do that much now, is show, actually, let's try and understand why it went wrong. but actually, why it went wrong is all to do with our exercise of power, both back in the imperial age and today, because we still go to the Congo and... I'm not going to say loot it, we take a lot out of it for our own leisure.
1: Is ideology always going to dictate our actions? I mean, as a species, can we understand the world in any other way apart from through the kinds of ideas that you've explored in all of your work that seem to dictate, you know, how the actions that we take in the world... What are you trying to achieve with this work? Are you trying to present an alternative or are you trying to hold a mirror to that process? Or do you think that we should stop trying to understand the world through these kind of pervasive ideas?
2: Well, I mean, I sometimes get criticized for believing too much that ideas change the world. That mostly comes from the sort of the, the left, the Marxists, who see it as economic forces that really change the world. I think that ideas do have effects, they don't always have the effects that they are intended to do, which is really the stories I tell. I think that we live in an age where we think there are no ideas around us. It's mm. a sort of, you know, a university professor would say we live in a post-ideological age. There's, there's a sort of an agreement uh, and, and we don't have big ideas. What I'm trying to point out in these, these films is, well, we do have an ideology, and that ideology is a systems ideology that simply looks at us as systems, and that, far from being a neutral engineering metaphor, it's a deeply politically loaded idea, because if you say we're all components in a system, whether it be nature, or whether it be the global economy, or whether it be a commune, and our job is to hold that system stable, well, who defines what's that stability that we should all try and aim for? That's about the exercise of power. That's an ideology. I'm, yes, of course I'm pulling out ideas at the expense of human emotion, although actually in the first film I tried to be more emotional than I have in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm I'm overemphasizing ideas, but that's because I think we live in a time when people are sort... It's very rigid. We think, oh, there are no ideas. There's just, there's just bosses and there's us and our circle of friends and that's it. Well, there's a lot more than that
0: we're virtually out of time but just, just very quickly to finish up with Then you've talked very critically about what's going on with the, the current protest movements um, you focus in the film on a couple of examples of self-organising revolutions in the, um, like the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine and the revolution in Georgia where basically there, there's this amazing rush to we want to be free we want to be free now we're free what are we 're going to do now, and you talk about how either the existing power structures or or newly formed ones will always sort of come to rise at the moment we're, we're almost the world's in a in a in a lab for an experiment of this because you know there's there's various arab uprisings going on you know the 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 arab spring i mean do, are we going to see the same thing do you think i mean it's it's quite early to tell i but... don't
2: know i mean i del- as you say i 've done the first Three of what you know you could loosely call the internet revolutions: Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and Ukraine. Um, I, I mean, I deliberately haven't done any of the other works. So we have no idea. But what I am arguing, and it goes back to your point, is is that I'm really sympathetic to anyone who challenges the vested interests of power, because I think we live in an age where that's increasingly going to have to happen. But self-organizing systems, on their own, are what they say they're organizing systems their managerialism and managerialism isn't about changing the world it's a retreat into bureaucracy or sort of rearranging things it's it's it is managerialism which is really the prevalent ideology of our time is that we're all systems we hold things stable and what i argue in all those revolutions which, if you look at them now, have gone backwards. They were incredibly noble, brave, hundreds of thousands of people poured into those squares in places like the Ukraine, challenged those in power and got rid of them. But then what next? Because it was a brilliant piece of organisation, but what next? And they've actually gone backwards. And I just think that what I'm trying to point out in that is that not that they're wrong, it's just that this ideology of systems of which we are all parts, and somehow that system stabilises itself, and that's it, is limiting or actually useless when you actually really want to change the world. You have to have a vision of a different way of organisation.
0: We're out of time. Adam, thanks very much for coming and speaking to Little Atoms again. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks.
2: You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests at our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes.